Okay, so now I'm also going to read the scripture. Today it is from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 28. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are, of all people, most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ the firstfruits, then, when he comes, those who belong to him. Then the end will come, when he hands over the kingdom of God the Father, as he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that God does not include, or this does not include God himself, who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Good morning again. Really quick, my name is Monica, and I'm one of the elders here at Watermark. Let me just move this. There we go. Move it out of the way. I am not preaching, but we have the privilege of Aaron Ross. He's part of our community, and right now is distant community. So he's been here before and let's make sure he feels welcome. Um, If you are new, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not Tommy. Um, If you are not not new, then I'm also sorry I'm not Tommy. Um, Yeah, my name is Aaron. Uh, If you've been around for a bit, I have preached here a few times. Uh, me and my wife, we lived over in Lakeland. I was a professor of theology at a university over there, and then COVID, and then COVID, uh, and now we're in Ohio. Thanks, COVID. Um, but uh, we're glad to be back. Um, we've kind of finally gotten settled in our little town uh, in between. It's kind of the Lakeland of Ohio, because... You know, Lakeland's halfway between Orlando and Tampa, and we found our way to like a tiny little town called Ashland, halfway in between Cleveland and Columbus, neither of which are as cool as Tampa. So we've eaten so much food since we've been back, because yeah, I don't think Ohioans believe in good food. At least that's what we're learning. Um, but Tampa does. Thank you. Um, so we've had a lot of kind of journey, uh, and we're really glad to kind of be back for the time that we have. You know, I wanted to say... You know, because my wife and I, we had a very interesting year last year. I mean, I know we all kind of did. We kind of got uprooted a bit. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that we love so much about Watermark is that, you know, when the congregational rep says, hey, if you need help, 
uh, let us know, you all really mean it. And even in a time where me and my wife were kind of uprooted, we, we found ourselves not necessarily in like the worst situation of many people, that there were a lot of people who kind of were really uh, destitute even in this past year and still are. But even still, uh, you know, we're so grateful to you all as a community that even as we were on our way, like this community made sure that we were taken care of in a time that we needed it. So I just want to say thanks, right? We're, we're so glad to be a part of a community that doesn't just say they're going to care for people, but really, but really does. Um, so when Tommy asked me to come down and uh, preach, super excited, glad that we could come back, started thinking about what it is that I would preach on. Nearly every time that I've preached here, I've preached on the Old Testament. I'm a theology professor, so typically, and I work with Paul a lot, so typically I would, you know, know the New Testament more, but I was like, ah, the Old Testament doesn't get a lot of love, so I'll try, um, to varying degrees of success, right? So I thought, okay, well, let me go back to the Old Testament. I've been kind of thinking a lot about, as I'm finishing up my doctorate, uh, like the mystery of God, and so I went to Deuteronomy, and I was like, all right, there's some things here about mystery, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get there. And it just wasn't coming together, and I was really struggling with it, and I was like, okay, I guess not mystery. So I went to my fallback, which was Ecclesiastes. Has anyone read that one? It's like everything is meaningless and nothing matters. So I literally went like a dark turn. I was like, this isn't happening. I don't know what's going on. I'll just go here. And I started reading. It's one of my favorite books, which is funny enough, maybe it says something about my own life. I'm just kidding. My life's great. Uh, but like... I started reading it and, and got into this passage, right? Yeah, everyone knows the beginning where it talks about life is meaningless. In fact, he says it multiple times that life is meaningless. But then like in chapter eight, the teacher, this person, uh, says something really strange, basically says, we all have the same destiny. Like we're all just gonna end up in nothingness, which sounds very not Christian, right? Like as part of our, our Christian faith, we believe there is something. But in Ecclesiastes, this teacher's like, everything is meaningless and we're all going to end up with nothing. So he basically in chapter eight says, eat, drink, live your life, have a good time because we're all going to die, right? Again, really negative, I guess with a little positivity. So, but then as I was reading that, I'm like, gosh, the worst thing that we need right now is more negativity, Right? And so I started thinking, and, and I just kind of took another turn and went like, what we really need, especially if you look at the news at all, is just hope, yeah. right? Like, I mean, it's so hard to go every few months, we're like, hey, this COVID thing, it's almost done, and then it's not, right? And then, hey, we're, we're finally ending a war, and it's caused all these problems, and especially for women and children in Afghanistan who, you know, are now being devastated, right? It's so hard. I, I feel like I've become an adult, and I say that just in the fact that I don't listen to music much anymore. I turn on the news. I think, I think sometimes my wife is like, what is this? Like, I used to listen to music all the time. Now it's just like NPR. In the car, that's it, right? But it can be really, really devastating to constantly be hearing about all this negativity, and so sometimes we just really need hope. So that's what I want to talk about in this passage. This is like kind of a confusing thing from Paul. At first it seems clear, but then it's not. Paul's got a lot to say. And really, it's a thing all about hope, but we just have to find out what he's meaning when he's talking about this hope, because it's often different than we hear uh, in our 
typical everyday theology or anything that we have probably heard about in terms of heaven and hell, Paul's got something really unique to say, especially to this uh, particular church. So let's pray, and then uh, we'll talk about hope. Father, we, we thank you for places and spaces and times that we can come together and, and be in your presence to, to be uplifted and to, to grow in who you are. And so I pray that in these moments that you would be with us and that you'd be present and that we would, through today, be better people, better servants of you, better people in the world, and that we would carry hope to those who need hope. It's in God's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. So a little bit about me, because, uh, you know, sermons are all about the preacher, right? Um, but just a little bit of my story in terms of kind of why I like the Bible uh, is not because I grew up in the church, which I did. My dad's a pastor. My grandfather was a minister and like prisons, right? Like we've got this kind of history of ministry in my family. And so because of it, you know, the church was open. I was there, right? And that was back in the day when Sunday morning you would go to church and then Sunday evening, if you were really holy, you would go to church because it was like a different sermon than the first one because one wasn't enough. And then you had Wednesday night service and Friday night get together and your small group. And, you know, basically if there was a time to get together and talk about the Bible, the church made it happen. But it was always at the church, not at homes, right? So I, I learned a lot about the Bible at a really young age. I mean, I, I had like one of those things, you know, you could do those speed drills. I don't know if anyone remembers those, like who can get to this book and verse fastest, right? Like I was an, a pro, right, at this. And like any of the Bible knowledge things, like quizzes that you could take, like I just knew everything. I could tell you chapter and verse and recite things. And and went off to college, decided to pursue ministry and theology, and uh, the Bible became really boring. And, and it became really boring because it just became this thing that I knew, that I had read, that I, had, I could recite, I could talk about. And then it did take a negative turn because I knew it so much that when I would go through difficulties in life, I would have pastors kind of cite verses to me as if they were magical fixes, Right? Like, don't be sad, go read Psalms, right? Even though I was like reading Ecclesiastes. They're like, read Psalms, right? Like, you need to figure out, you're having money problems, go to Proverbs, duh. Like, it, it's like a, like a magic fix, and oftentimes scripture would be kind of used that way. Like, let's just fix your life by just throwing out a verse or two. And so the Bible became really boring, and I was just like, I don't care about this thing, right? I've read it, I know it, it's not really helping me, so I don't care anymore. Well, in that time, I, I, even though I was in that kind of mode, I still was doing a master's degree in theology. And, and it wasn't until that time that I finally started to kind of crack some of that kind of struggle in my own life, that I started reading scripture and started doing it alongside of commentaries and theologians and biblical studies, all the people that I knew I should have been but wasn't reading along with, and started learning things that I always thought that I knew but realized was wrong right? And then all of a sudden, Scripture started giving me a lot of hope, because it actually started saying things to me that started working out with this Christian life, like what Jesus was doing in the world. And so this is one of those passages. This is one of those things that, I, I, you know, I've heard a lot, but, you know, it, it sounds nice, right? Like, you know, Paul's making this bigger argument, right? Some people are saying that Jesus didn't raise from the dead. This is bad, of course Jesus raised from the dead. If he didn't, what's the point of all this, right? 
At first, it seems really simple until we start realizing what he's really doing to the people he's actually writing to. And to do that, we have to understand the church in Corinth, right? Corinth is, is a Greek city. It's a bigger city. And it's one that people have a lot of knowledge, a lot of philosophy of the day is happening in this time and place. And one of the biggest philosophies, I mean, we've all, maybe, hopefully, or I'm just like in that age range now that I assume that everyone's seen the things that I've seen and no one has, right? But, you know, like the Disney Hercules, right? Yeah, okay. So, you know, that, that philosophy, the Greeks literally had a philosophy kind of present in that movie of like when you died, your soul was just kind of ripped away and put into this place called Hades. And it just was going to be there forever, right? Just floating around, doing nothing. The Jews also had something similar. They had this thing called Sheol, that they actually had a similar kind of philosophical understanding. Thus, in Ecclesiastes, back to that again, right? The, the teacher in Ecclesiastes says, we're all going to die and we're all going to go to the same place. Because the Jews actually had a similar thought process as well. At least at that time, they wouldn't have been called Jews. They would have just been called Israelites. They had a similar thought process. You died, you just kind of didn't exist anymore. If you did, it was just kind of a, a disembodied soul in a place and it just was there. And so Paul had taught the church in Corinth he had helped start it. He had helped work with it. And he had taught them about this hope of following Christ. But somewhere along the line, the philosophy of the day has started sneaking in. But before we get like angry or like pointing the finger at the church in Corinth and going, how dare you? Like we have to recognize that when Paul is doing this, it's in the early, uh, it's in the mid-50s. 50s of the first century. And we're talking 20 years after the Christ event, 20, 20, 30 years, somewhere in there after the Christ event. They're still trying to wrap their minds around what, who, who is Jesus and what does it mean that he's the Christ? And I mean, I think we're still trying to wrap our minds around that same thing today, yeah. Right? We're still in the process of what does Jesus mean for us today? What does it mean that Jesus is the Christ for us today? And it's still something that we have to process over and over because Jesus is bigger than even a book can tell us about. I mean, John tells us that, right? If everything about Jesus could be written, there wouldn't be enough books in the world, right? We're still processing what does Jesus look like for us today? And the Corinth church was dealing with it too. I mean, if you read the letter, Paul is pretty angry. I mean, at the first, he's kind of frustrated because he's heard some things about that's happening in the church and some things that are really strange, like a dude is sleeping with a stepmom, really strange, right? People are coming together to have communion, which I know Tommy just recently talked about, like communion as in the meal, sharing a meal together at a table, and people were coming early to eat their meal so they didn't have to share it with others, right? And so some people were getting fat and others were going without. And there's so many things that Paul is struggling with in the church in Corinth that he has to again say, hey, you've missed the idea of Jesus and I've got to show it to you again, right? I've got to help you. One of the, one of the most fascinating times in, in uh, this letter to the church at Corinth that Paul does this is 
about eating meat sacrificed to idols, right? Has anyone know, know that? I mean, I'm a teacher, sorry, so I ask a lot of questions, right? But in, in Corinth, Paul actually tells the people at the church, hey, if you're eating meat and it's sacrificed to idols, who cares? It doesn't matter. Like, it, it's really no big deal. But Paul has shifted the way the early church was, was dealing with that. I mean, Paul was the person, if we go back just five years, roughly five years prior, Paul and some people went to Jerusalem to where the church was kind of uh, located, like the head of the church was there in Jerusalem, and they have this council because they don't know what to do with people like in Corinth who don't follow the Old Testament law, and yet the Spirit has fallen on them, and yet they're following Christ, but they don't follow all the food laws and the religious observances and the sacrifices and what they eat and what they shouldn't eat because they just are following this person of Christ. And in in Jerusalem, what happens is Paul goes and he says, why are we burdening them he makes this argument, why are we telling them that they have to follow the Torah, that they have to follow the first five books of the Bible, when they're clearly having the Spirit fall on them, and they are following after Christ, and they're not eating kosher? Like, there's something happening here. And so the church at Corinth, they get together, and all these kind of Jewish Christians, like the earliest Jewish Christians say, yeah, we don't need to burden, they literally say, we shouldn't burden them with that law anymore. Because that's not about following Christ. What you eat or what you don't eat, that doesn't matter. And yet they said at the end of that letter, they sent out a letter to all the churches to say, hey, if you're a, if you're a Gentile and you're a follower of Christ, you don't need to worry about this. Paul was Jewish. He still followed those laws because he was still Jewish, but wasn't putting them on anyone else. And they, in this letter, they sent it out and they said, hey, it's okay, you can... You know, don't worry about following the Torah law. The only three things that we really want you to still follow is uh, be sexually pure, right? Don't be promiscuous. Um, don't eat meat with blood still in it, which really just meant don't eat sacrifices that were strangled. I just realized how dark this just got. Again, why do I keep doing that, right? Like, don't eat strangled meat. And then the last one is don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. Literally, in the book of Acts, it actually says, hey, do not do this. Do not eat meat sacrificed to idols. And five years later, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and saying, who cares? Like, yet again, let's think about who this person of Jesus is. There is something else that we have to learn. And actually, eating meat that's been sacrificed to idol, that's not worshiping that idol. That's just having a meal. Now, he does follow up to say, hey, if it causes someone else to stumble or if it causes someone else to start worshiping a false god, then don't do it because now it doesn't help you or them. It does nothing good. But it doesn't really matter if you do because what is that anyways? It's a false god. You're not worshiping it. You're just having your stake, I guess, right? So in, in this portion in this that we're talking about today, Paul is dealing with, and sorry I don't have slides, I know Tommy has like great stick figures and stuff that I try to emulate and I just can't do it well. I mean, you think he does stick figures and I do them worse, so that's a thing. Um, In this passage, Paul is having to do that yet again to a church that's struggling with this idea of who Jesus is by bringing in their philosophy, their Greek philosophy, that when they died, all that happens is that the soul would leave the body and it would just go somewhere. And there was no resurrection of the physical body. There was nothing to come back from. Once you died, that was it. 
And Paul basically is trying to help them understand that without the idea of the resurrection of the body, there is no hope. It's meaningless. It actually is meaningless. And so he goes through this kind of argument that uh, if there is no resurrection of the dead, again, things are meaningless. But this is an idea that you would think that once Paul taught, people would have said, okay, I got it. There has to be resurrection of the dead in order for us to have meaning and hope in our Christian faith, in our Christian life. And yet, the same idea kept circling in the church to the point that early church fathers had to continually combat the idea about there not being a physical resurrection. We've talked about, I mean, I've, I've talked about it. I know Tommy's talked about it before. There was a group of people in the, like, in the early church, and they were a part of the church, that were called the Gnostics. They had this idea that when you died, your soul would leave your body and your soul would go to somewhere called heaven and your body would just be left behind. And this was such a problem in the early church. We find in multiple places in, uh, in the gospel, or not in the gospels, but in the rest of the letters, that Paul has to fight against this idea, that John has to fight against this idea because they had this perception that after death, our soul left because this world, everything about it was bad and evil and who cares, right? I grew up in a Pentecostal church and so therefore I grew up with some strange things. Some good things, but some strange things. And one of the strange things that I grew up with was this idea that God didn't like this place and that actually what he was just waiting on was for some people to get saved and then he was gonna come back and blow it all up. And then he was gonna give us a brand new one Aha. Right? Like, like this one didn't matter anymore, that really what we needed was a new one. And actually, as much as I love my Pentecostal upbringing, I look back and I go, that's a first century heresy. That's literally what people were fighting against, the idea that this place doesn't matter when in fact it really does. And so the Gnostics and, and, and the people in Corinth, even the Christians, we're trying to deal with something that seemed really beyond reason. I mean, how many people have seen anyone raised from the dead? It does, it, it, we just don't see it, right? There's that passage in Matthew. If you're ever reading the book of Matthew and you get to where Jesus, you know, dies and then he, and right after he dies, like Matthew like throws in this little verse where he's like, and then the dead came back to life. Like, people started seeing dead loved ones walking around, and I'm like, Matthew's talking about zombies before zombie movies were a thing, right? And, and we oftentimes just skip it, and I still struggle with it. I still don't know what to do with it, because it just seems so beyond rationality, so beyond reason. What does he mean that people are just coming up and being raised back to life? What does it mean that Jesus is raised back to life? And so it's a hard notion. It's beyond reason. And yet, for Paul, without this, Christianity means nothing. The rest of it just doesn't do us any good. And like I said, in the first century, it really became an issue, so much so that we actually have some ancient writing from early church fathers about this notion that when you died, your soul would leave your body and you'd go somewhere else. Uh, One guy, his name's Justin Martyr, um, and he was arguing against a guy named Trypho the Jew, which is just so funny to me, like that's how people knew each other. Oh yeah, Justin, the one that got martyred, and uh, Trypho, that Jew, right? Like, I'm just like Aaron, the white guy from Lakeland. Like, that's what my name should be, right? But 
he was talking to, he was debating really, this guy named Trifo the Jew, about resurrection, about resurrection of the dead. And Justin Martyr is one of our early church fathers. He's one of those guys that without uh, Justin Martyr, we wouldn't think about Christianity the way that we do today, right? He directly influences what we think of when we think about our faith. And he actually put it this way. He said in his conversation with Trifo the Jew, he said, some who are called Christians who say that there is no resurrection of the dead and that their souls when they die are taken to heaven. What are they to Justin Martyr? They are godless and pious heretics. Oof, sorry, Justin, (laughs) right? Like, don't come to the 21st century. Might be a little scary, right? He literally calls these people who actually deny the reality that there's gonna be a resurrection, that our bodies, that this place matters. He calls them early heretics. One of the first kind of uses of what we call an apologist, someone who's arguing against a, a, what they call a false notion and pointing the finger and saying they're heretics. He goes on to say this. He, he just says, do not imagine that they are Christians. I mean, that's, that's how strong this notion is for Paul and for Justin and for our early church that if we deny this thing called the resurrection of the dead, the rest of this isn't going to matter. A guy, a guy named Richard Hayes, when he kind of sums up Paul's argument in this passage, he puts it this way. He says, Paul insists that the story of, of Christ is a real event, a bodily resurrection. Christ is not just a symbol for some set of abstract theological truths. Those who deny that God really has the power to raise the dead have placed themselves in contradiction to the gospel story and it is illogical for them to continue speaking the name of Christ. For Richard Hayes, who's a, a Pauline scholar, he's really well known as someone who's like a, an authority on Paul. And, and for Justin Martyr and, and for Paul, this idea of the resurrection of the dead has everything to do with what our life looks like today. And that's, that's also the rub, That for many of us, when we think about resurrection or we think about heaven or we think about life after death or whatever it is, we're always thinking about something out there and we're forgetting to think about the thing here and now. Life, creation, the space that we're in, the people that we're around. And so again, growing up, because I had this idea that God was just going to get rid of this and give us a new one, I didn't care about this one. I didn't have hope for this place, and so therefore how I treated this place didn't matter. I didn't have hope for some people because they were just going to go somewhere else, and so how I treated them didn't matter. Without hope, how we engage within our world is going to be destitute because we don't have hope for it. And if all our hope is that we escape this place and go somewhere else, then we're just leaving this to its vices. And this is where Paul moves on and actually at the end of of his argument here in the first half of the passage that we read, he said, anyone who believes this is to be pitied. Like if, if this is the case, if it really is there's no resurrection of the dead, any who have died before, their life is pitied because they just wasted it. I mean, maybe we could go back to Ecclesiastes once more and go, I don't know about you, but Ecclesiastes sounds a lot more fun than Paul. 
even though it's really negative and everything is meaningless, because he tells us to just eat and drink and enjoy our life and don't worry about it because we're all going to the same place. And Paul is actually saying the opposite. He's not saying to not enjoy life, but he's also saying to think about the future of the resurrection, that there's something happening here that we have to be a part of today. And so the whole argument, if I can kind of sum it up, it goes like this. In verse 14, um, and if the person with the slide, oh, look at that, you already did it, great, thanks. Um, In verse 14, he basically says, without the resurrection of the dead, our preaching, our proclamation is in vain. It means nothing. And what's the result of that? We find it in verse 15. We're false witnesses about God. Paul's strong here too. If you deny this reality of resurrection of the dead, you're a false witness to God. Full stop, right? But then he goes on to say this. In verse 14, he also kind of points out two things in 14 and 17. Your faith is both in vain and it's futile. And what's the result? You're still in your sins. And, And I know Tommy's talked about sins in a really beautiful way here at Watermark, in this kind of cycle of violence, the cycle of caring for ourselves over the other, this this cycle of really being self-focused, that without Christ, we can't get out of that cycle, right? We are still within our sins. And then the result, again, in verse 18, is that those who have died in Christ are lost. If there is no resurrection, they are lost. And in verse 19, he goes on again to say, They are to be pitied. And if you don't believe me about Ecclesiastes, let me just read it for you about how Paul is really changing, really working against what this teacher, I don't say working against, maybe a better way is saying clarifying, bringing further what maybe the teacher in Ecclesiastes missed because the teacher in Ecclesiastes didn't have Christ, right? If we look at Ecclesiastes, we see the teacher who's talking about life and death without the person of Christ, and we see the result. Everything is meaningless, and when we die, we all go to the same place. It doesn't really matter. And when we see Paul with Christ, things change. So in Ecclesiastes, just so you all know, and if anyone ever wants to, it's actually Ecclesiastes 9. It's the beginning. He says, the teacher is saying this, so I reflected on all of this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands, but no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who, are, who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid of them. Common destiny, right? It doesn't matter what we do. It doesn't. And Paul says that's not right because of Christ, because of resurrection, because there's something. And so Paul gives this juxtaposition. We believe there is something to happen. We believe there's something more because with bodily resurrection, we are going to have true life. And what does that mean? For Paul, what he's really doing is he's actually engaging in this idea that with the resurrection of the body, if Christ is raised, so will we be. And if that's going to happen, then Christ is at work in redeeming this place and fixing it and taking care of it and making it back to what it was always supposed to be, but we kind of screwed it up. That's what God is at work in doing. And one of the things that we have to really be careful about as we're going down this path and we get into the second half of the argument 
Paul says something that often we miss in the church. Many of us often think, uh, who are my Frank Peretti people? Or like, like you've read Frank Peretti, right? Yeah, like that book, others of you are like, who's that and I don't care, right? Uh, Frank Peretti, he wrote this book, he wrote a couple of these books about, like they're fictional books, and I read them as a kid because I was, again, a good Pentecostal that believed in angels and demons and warfare and all this stuff, and I still think there's something there, but not the way that Frank said it, because Frank had this idea that, you know, he wrote this fictional book that the more you prayed, the more the angels could attack the demons, and they would be in this, like, battle, and if you prayed harder, the angels would have more power, I guess. I don't know. It was strange, right? But we had this idea of kind of like this weird notion that somehow God is not in control, that somehow Christ actually isn't the king, but this other figure is, Satan. And yet Paul is actually telling us that when when Christ was raised to life to go sit at the right hand of the Father, Christ is already today, here and now, ruling and reigning in the earth. It's not something that's going to happen. It's something that's currently happening. And Christ is at work in doing something within the world that he's invited his church to be a part of, to be a part of that work. And Paul talks about these enemies, right? I mean, how many of you have ever, what verse are we here again? Verse um, 25, it says this, right? For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. I mean, how many of you ever heard that verse used as like an excuse to treat someone like an enemy? Hey, you're not, you're not a Christian, you're an enemy. After 9-11 and those events, if, if you, you know, paid attention, if you were, you were old enough to pay attention, right? Uh, we turned a group of people into enemies of God that we could do whatever we wanted to against because they were against us. Right? And we use verses like this to point the finger and go, those are our enemies, so it doesn't matter how I treat them because God's just trying to destroy his enemies anyways. But what we miss is that Paul actually tells us what the enemies are in verse 24. The enemies aren't people. The enemies are abuses of power, of dominion, of authority. These are the enemies of God. When we try to take authority away from God, that's an enemy of God. Not the person, the thing. This is why Paul doesn't, I mean, if you realize at the beginning of this passage, Paul is kind of angry, right? Paul, if you read his letters a lot, you start to learn when Paul is angry and he kind of gets like, uh, he really has this kind of tone come out that he's frustrated, that he has to say something again, right? But Paul never points out the people who are teaching in Corinth that there is no resurrection of the dead. He wasn't like it was Timaeus, right? He wasn't like saying it was that guy, kick him out. Because Paul is not looking at people as enemies, but he's talking about the enemies of God as power and authority and dominion. These things that Christ is already, because Christ is raised from the dead, Christ is already at work overcoming within the world. The last one that Paul argues is death. That's the last enemy. Again, if you don't have resurrection of the physical body, then death will never be overcome. 
All of the New Testament really points us in this picture. So many passages talk about the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of back to life. In, in Revelation, John points, uh, talks about Jesus as the firstborn among the dead. You can't have a firstborn if there's not going to be a secondborn. It would just be the onlyborn. Because John is pointing to the picture that this is going to happen for all those who follow what John says is the lamb who was slain, Jesus. What we have to do as the church is recognize that Jesus, because Jesus has been raised back to life and because that's going to be our common goal, that's what's gonna be for us, resurrection of the dead, that we participate in hope for that resurrection and the overcoming of the enemies of God. But again, that's not the keyboard warrior on Facebook that we're overcoming right? It's actually those things that are taking away from God, power and authority, dominion. These are the things that we're invited to participate in overcoming. It helps us separate from being against people versus against the thing that people wield. Because we're not called to be against people, but against the things that people do and use as if they are God, right? This is the original sin. This is the thing that Adam and Eve both struggled with in the garden. It wasn't that they ate some magical apple that gave them sin. It's because they were, they were uh, convinced that they could have the things that God had, power, wisdom, authority, that they could take what was properly God's. And ever since then, this is why Paul is actually using the argument in this passage about Jesus as the second Adam because he's talking about Adam do, or Jesus doing it the right way where Adam failed. Jesus didn't assume power and authority. Even at the end of the passage, we learn that Jesus, even though Jesus is given this authority as king, what does Jesus do with it? Gives it back to God. Because it's not his but it's God's proper, right? There's so much hope to the Christian faith when we can, we can start with the idea that there is something more to come and stay in that hope and learn how to engage in that hope in the world by helping overcome the enemies of God. Power and authority, the abuses of power, the abuses of authority, the way in which members of our community are being pushed down by others, the way in which we don't care for other people who are in need. When we are at work in the work of Christ, being faithful to what, what God has for us, we are participating in the work of Christ who is already king here and now. This is the work of God. This should give us hope. Hope is an is a, is a interesting thing though because we have to really understand that hope oftentimes goes, again, beyond reason. I come to Florida, I hope that it's gonna be cool, I know it's not, <laughs> right? Like, I know for a fact, I grew up my entire life in Florida, I know it's gonna be 100% humidity and it's gonna feel like death. I mean, even getting off the plane, it was a wave of heat, right? But I can still have hope that the weather may be different. 
I can know that I'm wrong, but still have hope. Hope is interesting because hope, the hope of Christ is the hope that says, it may seem like that resurrection of the body thing is not real, but I still have hope. It's not, it's not blind faith. I know. I know it seems unreasonable. I'm not blindly believing in something, but I am having hope that what Christ says is true. And because of that hope, I want to engage in the world that Christ is at work in building. Amen. Does that make sense? Yeah. If we think about it in this way, then our Christian life becomes one of hope, not one of us versus them or one of sinner versus saint or we just have to go out and make everyone say this prayer and get everyone to do this thing so that we, when they die, they can go to heaven. But now we actually go, hey, because of what Christ is doing, we're at work in building the kingdom of God here because I have an idea and a picture of what that's going to be. Because yeah. I have hope for what that is. Because our New Testament writers tell us what that's supposed to look like. I mean, Paul has just finished an argument in that passage that... I love to hate, hate to love, one of those weird things. In, in 1 Corinthians 13, you know that love chapter? Yeah. It's like, you know, the wedding chapter, right? That's why I, I love to hate it, because it's just like, it's only ever used for something that was never meant for to begin with. But in the end of that chapter, he talks about three things that are, are necessary for all of Christian life, and that's faith, hope, and love. We have to have the hope of the resurrection, enact that hope faithfully, and do it lovingly. Amen. Without that, this Christian thing means nothing. It really doesn't do us any good. In fact, if there is no resurrection, as Paul said again, we're to be pitied. We spend a lot of time doing this stuff. If it amounts not to God coming back and redeeming the thing that he loves, putting it all back to right, and doing that with us, for us, so we can be participating in him? What does it matter? That's Paul's argument. That's a beautiful thing if we spend the time to let it sink in and we engage in hope and we move forward in hopefulness. That's the kind of Christianity that I want to be a part of. A hopeful one, a loving one, a generous one. One that doesn't look at people as enemies, but actually calls out the things that are the true enemies of God. Yeah. The kind of one that looks at my own life and says, when do I yield authority and power and dominion and I use it for my own good? When do I look at someone as the enemy versus these other things? Yeah. This is a, that's the kind of Christianity that if, if we all just engaged in, the church would be an incredible force. And it'd be, an, it'd be a force because it's not forceful. It's ironic. It's because it's loving. It's hopeful. It gives people a hope. So whenever we turn on the news and we see what's happening in Afghanistan or we see what's happening with COVID and we get more numbers because we struggle to get people to wear masks, which by the way, you all look great. Uh, and, and we struggle to kind of help people see science and understand things, right? When we get, again, in a moment where we're not, where we're feeling without hope, we go back to the hope of Christianity. 
the resurrection of the dead, the fact that Christ is going to return, put it all to rights, that he loves this place, he loves those enemies, those people, just as much as he loves us, and he's moving us forward into his kingdom. Then I can go, I can hear, I can pray, I can help, I can do something because of this kingdom that God's building. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for, yet again, helping us to explore your word in ways that we may not have done before and to hear what you have to say and to, to recognize the places that we might need to yet again understand who Jesus is for us today. We are so thankful that we get to be a part of that and that we are not to be pitied because there's something to come and there is the resurrection that you are creating this place for us both today and in the years to come. We love you and we thank you and we pray that you would continue to build us as a community of people who engage in that hope and that we move forward in your love and we do so faithfully. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I believe we have a prayer that we say together. Are you doing the prayer? Hell, no, you... I'm done talking.